Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Aid and assistance, countries and companies pledging help as India's COVID crisis worsens. Holiday hopes the EU says US tourists may be welcome this summer if vaccinated. And core commitment, Apple upping its investment in US manufacturing and jobs. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Well, welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. It is great to be with you as always. And we have a lot coming up this hour. First and foremost, the humanitarian crisis still unfolding in India. The severity of the situation causing the international community, the Biden administration and big business to step up and offer support. We will bring you all the latest details on that very soon. Plus, Apple's American ambitions, Tim Cook announcing a further $80 billion step up to its multi-billion dollar spending plans over the next five years. And as I mentioned too, stepping into summer, American holidaymakers might be welcome in the EU this summer, but don't forget your vaccine passport. The details on all of these top stories coming up. It's a day after the Oscars, of course, too, but there's little movie magic for the US majors pre-market. A dramatic pause before a blockbuster week of news, perhaps walking. The red carpet this week, Tesla after the bell today, then Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter and more follow later this week. The Fed and the Bank of Japan both update on U.S. on policy, not U.S. policy, but on policy in general. President Biden taking the spotlight on Wednesday with a speech before a joint session of Congress. Watch out for tax talk. I'm talking plans to raise capital gains tax on the wealthy, the plan that triggered market volatility on Friday. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the world, European stocks remain near records. Asia had a cautious session, a reflection perhaps of the devastating situation in India and the potential for spillover effects too. Let's get to the drivers. A catastrophic surge in India, the nation reporting more than 352,000 new COVID cases today alone, forcing authorities to recall retired military medical personnel to help save lives. Anna Corrin has the details. As smoke rises over a pile of ashes, another family huddles over the remains of their loved one. A son says farewell to his 49-year-old mother who died of COVID a day ago, while his twin brother fights for his life in hospital. Another body draped in marigolds is led into the crematorium, an assembly line of death and misery on an insurmountable scale. For a fifth consecutive day, India has set a global record for daily infections and deaths. But health experts believe the real numbers could be much higher. The acute shortage of oxygen across the country is the main killer. As hospitals already over capacity turn away patients who don't have their own oxygen cylinders and supply. But here if somebody dies, you know he dies because of a lack of oxygen. You cannot describe that feeling, man. But you feel like crying, I tell you feeling so helpless. Unable to get an ambulance, this family takes their brother to hospital in a rickshaw, his feet protruding. But like all the others they'd visited, it has no available beds, let alone enough oxygen. I tried almost all the hospitals, he says. Everyone told me they had no oxygen supply. So I came here and they shoot us away at the gate, saying they don't have any oxygen. 
The wait outside excruciating, but help never comes. He shakes his brother, but it's too late. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has described the second wave as a storm that has shaken the country and announced the construction of more than 500 oxygen generation plants. But that's cold comfort for the families who feel their government has abandoned them and left them to fight this pandemic on their own. When critics say the government should have been preparing and stockpiling for the inevitable, it dropped its guard, allowing social gatherings, religious festivals and political rallies to be held, some the Prime Minister himself attended, giving the virus the chance to spread and mutate. In the capital, New Delhi, there is more than 30% positivity rate and half the cases by the start of this month were the more contagious variant that's afflicting younger people and has now been detected in the UK and Switzerland. For radio host Stuti Ghosh, whose father contracted COVID, she pulled him out of hospital because she feared he would die there. For every 200 patients, only one doctor was available. She bought an oxygen concentrator on the black market for an exorbitant price, allowing her father to be cared for at home. But she says if you don't have money and privilege, what hope do you have in saving your loved ones? If, God forbid, you're in, you're in a position where you can't breathe, and you have doctors who are breaking down on social media in front of the camera saying patient will die, patients are being turned away because there is no oxygen... Who will answer this? This this is a failure. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. Uh, indeed, crisis is the world's crisis and we have to react accordingly. Ivan Watson joins us now. Ivan, um, great to have you with us. We spoke to the government's chief scientific officer last week and he admitted that they were caught off guard, that they reacted slowly simply due to the scale of this crisis. What more have we heard from the government and what actions are they taking Well, just moments ago, you had top health officials give a press conference about the the crisis. Uh, And one of those individuals said that there's unnecessary panic out here, out there, and it's contributing to shortages of oxygen and medicine and creating these scenes outside the hospital. That rings a little oddly when you consider there are a lot of reports right now about crematoria that are, are working round the clock. When we have colleagues of our own that work with us who have lost loved ones in the last week who were scrambling to try to find ICU beds when the capital, New Delhi, last week, according to the government, had less than three dozen ICU beds left. When we're hearing about people uh, acquiring oxygen tanks on the black market, uh, there may be scenes of panic, but as you can see from these images right here of these crowded hospitals, there are also very sick people who are not getting treatment and a lot of desperate people trying to find hospital beds, trying to find medicine uh, and oxygen as their loved ones literally uh, gasp for their breath. Now, the government has announced a number of measures moving forward. It, it has announced plans to, to create more than 500 facilities around the country to manufacture oxygen. The military has announced that it's going to mobilize military medical personnel. It's even calling up uh, medical personnel who've retired within the last two years uh, to report back to duty. Uh, And the authorities say they're trying to make sure that oxygen can move freely around the country. There have been reports from hospitals of their own deliveries being stopped 
by police, for example, and the government has announced that it's going to create some kind of a GPS tracking system to keep track of, uh, of deliveries to make sure that they get to where they need to go. We have health officials saying there is enough oxygen, but the bottleneck is in, is in the transport and in the logistics. But suffice to say, India is going through a major crisis, and the prime minister himself uh, has acknowledged that, even though his own health minister six weeks ago was saying that, hey, India's basically made it through the pandemic. Now you have the prime minister who is canceling uh, campaign rallies that he was conducting less than two weeks ago with thousands of people participating, uh, is now saying that, that India is facing a storm. So there's been a a dramatic shift in some of the rhetoric that's come out of the government as people are desperately trying to find ways to keep their loved ones alive. Julia. Yeah, we can't turn back time, but we can act now. And they certainly need to continue to step up and and react to this in the whole world. At least we're starting to see the whole world react to this as well. Ivan, great to have you. Thank you for that report. Ivan Watson there. So it's not just the international community. Google, Microsoft promising support for India amid the latest COVID wave. Both CEOs, who are, of course, Indian-born, are rushing aid to the country. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, what more do we know? What are they doing? Yeah, Julia, the Indian diaspora goes very deep into Silicon Valley. It's a major force there. These are two of the most important executives in big tech in the United States. What we know so far is uh, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, tweeting, Microsoft will continue to use its voice, resources, and technology to aid relief efforts and support the purchase of critical oxygen uh, concentration devices. We have more detail uh, from Google CEO uh, of Google and its parent company Alphabet, Sundar Pichai, putting a number on this saying there's $18 million in new funding. Among those, uh, you know, including in that funding are grants to UNICEF and Give India, which is an online donation platform to help families affected by this crisis, employee donations from Google employees, and $15 million in free advertising for public health information campaigns. Information crucially important in this. Google also says in India it's rolling out more information across maps and search, including vaccination sites uh, and things like that. Other big tech are also involved. It's not just where the CEO is Indian. Amazon is helping with NGOs in, in, in bringing 10,000 uh, new oxygen concentrators and BiPAP machines. They tweeted a video of that also today. But but worth pointing out as well, Julia, that India is a crucial market for big tech. You cannot separate that uh, from all of these efforts. 750 million internet users still growing. And we have to mention as well, Others hitting hurdles when we talk about information, Twitter uh, under scrutiny today for complying with a government request to remove around 100 posts, which the government says uh, are misinformation and causing panic. Some of them, though, appear to be from opposition figures criticizing the Modi government's handling of this crisis. So a tightrope for big tech, but stepping up efforts to help with this crisis. Yeah, and at least in uh, Twitter's case, they're telling us exactly who's demanding that these posts get taken down, of course. And while you don't want to incite concern, it's good that we're aware and we're aware because of social media in particular. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. Okay, let's move on. Apple doubling down on its vision of the US and its hub for cutting edge technologies, manufacturing and creativity. It says it will spend more than $400 billion in the States over the next five years on everything from data centers and research facilities to original TV shows, promising to create tens of thousands of new jobs. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, it's not all new money and we have to be clear, but this is a monster 
monster amount of money. I was doing some analysis here. It's the same as the GDP of Norway. So the 31st largest <laughs> nation in the world. And of course, the market cap of Apple is comparable to the GDP of Italy, the eighth yeah. largest nation in the world. Wowzers. It's a big sum. And look, when this was first announced in 2018, it was a $350 billion commitment over five years. And the then president of the United States, Donald Trump, mentioned it at the very top of his State of the Union address about how conditions were so good in America for doing business. What Apple is saying this morning is they're upping that commitment. And there is a new president in uh, the Oval Office here, upping it by about $80 billion and pretty much investing more money in every single state. Something new here that's very very telling, the Research Triangle in North Carolina, a big investment there of about a billion dollars. That'll be 3,000 new jobs. And these are very big high-tech jobs. These are investments in silicon engineering, 5G technology, artificial uh, intelligence, machine learning. So a big investment in domestic manufacturing and domestic business in the U.S. Uh, Back in 2018, the company said over five years it would be able to add 20,000 jobs in the U.S., new jobs. Apple says it's on track to make that by 2023 and, in fact, is adding another 20,000 jobs over the next uh, five years in places like uh, Texas, where by next year you're going to have a big Austin campus that will have employees coming there, uh, San Diego, all across the country, a lot of different places. There's also another nod uh, to this administration buried in this press release as well, where it says that um, Apple is the largest taxpayer in the United States and has paid almost $45 billion (laughs) in uh, domestic taxes over the past five years alone just while you're contemplating raising corporate tax rates. Guys. The timing here is very, very key. You've got a Biden administration that's going to lay out its infrastructure and sort of family economy plans this week to be paid for by higher taxes on the very rich and, and on companies. Uh, this is showing, this is Apple showing that it can do infrastructure too. There's a big infrastructure push in here in North Carolina for uh, roads, broadband, uh, public schools. We don't know how much tax incentive the state of North Carolina is offering uh, to Apple to come there and invest in its research uh, triangle area. Um, stay tuned on that. But indeed, this is, I mean, $400 billion. That's, that's not a small chunk of change. No, that's half of what the Republicans are now proposing, isn't it, for the, the infrastructure bill, that's a right. tighter, less flexible uh, definition of infrastructure in this case as well. <laughs> Christine Romans, thank you for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Russian prosecutors have ordered the political offices of the imprisoned Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny to suspend their activities. And they've asked a court to do the same for Navalny's anti-corruption foundation. The move comes as a court is deciding whether to designate both organizations as extremist groups. Let's go live now to Moscow with CNN's Fred Pleitgen. Fred, great to have you with us. And, And just to be clear, if this court rules in the government's favor, it will mean that Navalny's operations, the group, the anti-corruption foundation, ironically, will have the same Mm. designation as Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, those kind of organizations. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was quite interesting. One of Navalny's allies, uh, she uh, earlier today uh, said essentially they believe that what the government is trying to do, uh, trying to do, is declare the fight against corruption as being extremism. The Kremlin was asked about this today as well. They said they're not going to comment uh, on this trial because, of course, obviously it is still ongoing, but certainly would have a chilling, if not a destructive effect on Navalny's organization. For instance, people who are working for that organization right now, if they continue to do so, they would face significant jail time. The same with people who publicly support that organization. They would also face fines and possible jail time as well. 
even if you donate money or even tweet or retweet support for that organization, uh, people then could face fines and also face uh, significant uh, jail time for doing that as well. So certainly there are many in that organization who believe that this is really the government accelerating, going after this organization, going after Alexei Navalny. Of course, one of the things we have to keep in mind, Julia, that Alexei Navalny's organization and his anti-corruption foundation, they really are right here, uh, the only opposition groups that are spread across the entire country, that have significant positions uh, across the entire country, and that certainly do manage to bring a lot of people to the streets for their protests. And so this trial is really one that is being looked at very, very carefully, not just here in Russia, but of course internationally as well. And certainly one where you do feel that the organization, the people who run that organization, they believe that it could be very, very dangerous to them. In fact, uh, you've just said that the prosecutor here uh, ordered them to stop their organizations. We have already heard from Navalny's regional offices that they have already stopped disseminating uh, information uh, because obviously right now, as all this is going on, it'd be very, very dangerous for them to continue working the way that they had before. Julia? Yeah, I'll quote Amnesty International because they're saying it would be, quote, one of the most serious blows for the rights to freedom of expression and association in Russia's post-Soviet history. Back to the future. Fred Pleitgen, live in Moscow. Thank you for that. An investigation is underway into that massive hospital fire in Baghdad over the weekend that killed more than 80 people and injured many more. Iraq's prime minister has suspended the health minister and governor of Baghdad. Health officials say they believe oxygen tanks exploded and set off the flames. Total is the latest energy giant to pull out of northern Mozambique, citing security issues. The French firm is halting operations on a multi-billion dollar natural gas project in the region because of attacks by Islamic insurgents. Last year, ExxonMobil postponed making fresh investments in the area because of the safety threat. And we'll have more on this and many other stories from across the African continent on One World with Zane Asher. The programme premieres today at noon Eastern Time, 5pm in London and 6pm in Johannesburg. Do not miss that. I'll be watching. All right, still to come here on First Move. The Bahamas launches one of the world's first central bank-backed cryptocurrencies, the central bank coin. We'll speak to the man in charge. And a concrete solution to climate change. The company sinking carbon into cement to cut emissions. That's all coming up. Stay with us. back to First Move. Apple surprised investors today with a new multi-billion dollar commitment to boost U.S. manufacturing. As you can see, though, little commitment to fresh positioning ahead of this week's deluge of earnings from Apple and other tech giants, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter and the like. But confidence in the ongoing stock market rise is strong. A new Barron's poll showing 67 percent of money managers anticipating future market gains. And numbers out of the United States later this week should help that too. Q1 GDP growth estimates are at 6% or higher. All this amid a continued spike in the price and demand for commodities. Lumber soaring to all-time highs. Copper prices at their best levels in a decade, as long as you're not building. Now, the so-called Everything Rally triggering concerns about raw material shortages and rising prices, of course, too. Now, travel stocks taking off pre-market after the EU Commission president raised hopes that Americans will be welcome in Europe this summer. But there's a catch. Richard Crest joins us now. Richard, great to have you on the show. The catch, of course, is that you need a vaccine passport and we need to talk to the CDC in the United States and make sure they're willing to have you come back in as easily. 
Yes, and I think those catches are logistical, but the principle has been set, Julia, and that's what's significant here. They've agreed, or that in principle, that since all the US vaccines are also approved in the European Union, then there's no reason why uh, those who've had them don't couldn't have unfettered or unconditional access within Europe. And that's going to be the way forward. Uh, the logistical part, Europe has this digital green pass that it's putting together, which will be electronic, whereas the US, as, as you know, is handing out little white cards with stickers on them to show that you've been vaccinated. Will that be acceptable as a mode of, of, of operation when you get to Europe? Will it have to be converted into the digital green pass? Those are the sort of logistical things, because what they are concerned about, and I think rightly, is frauds, forgeries uh, and that sort of thing. Julia, I would say it's not going to be next week or even next month. I think you're looking at middle to late summer before this thing is properly up and running. And of course, the UK has to do its own independent deal since it's not part of the EU. Yeah, what about children, though? And what about the concerns of variants? I mean, to your point, late summer, but we've still got significantly high levels of the virus in Europe, enough that lockdowns in some certain cases are still needed. There's still challenges. I can still see challenges beyond the logistics. Oh, absolutely. But those challenges will be met by PCR testing. And right. yes, children will provide a difficulty, but in some cases they will have to be tested. A negative PCR test. People, they're not so worried about children because the statistics do show that the younger, it's harder to catch and they recover faster. But some form, because there are those people who won't be tested, those people who can't have a vaccine, those are the ones where they're going to have the difficulties. I think we can focus too much on the, on the problems cases and, and sort of miss the wood for the trees, uh, as they say, or the trees for the wood. Um, the, the reality is opening up Europe through this sort of agreement will be a massive, massive benefit and will only put into place what other countries like Greece, which opens up on May the 15th, have said, look, we're going ahead anyway. Iceland, Greece, Croatia, many countries have said, we're going ahead anyway. It's time to let people travel if they've got a vaccination and we're going to see a massive ramp up, I think, in flights. Actually, you raise a great point there in that European nations decide for themselves anyway. So uh, the commission president can say one thing, but in the end, it's the countries <laughs> themselves who say, come on in, please. We should stay there a second because I want to get your take on this uh, next story. One of Britain's biggest asset managers is changing its name in a rebrand, which has raised some eyebrows, to say the least, or furrowed some brows. Standard Life Aberdeen will now be known as this. It's a shortened version of the word Aberdeen, they've taken the vowels out. Some critics say that it's trying to attract a younger client base by mimicking a trendy startup. Richard, you can pronounce it. What, what, do, you, what do you make of this? Aberdeen. Aberdeen. A, a burden. Aberdeen. The reality <laughs> is, Julia, I am 59 years old and so this is not designed for me. Uh, the truth is Standard Life and Aberdeen are both good, solid, reliable, some say boring companies and insurance and, and this and financial management and, 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 this, and asset management. And this is what they want to avoid. They want to be seen as a, a thrusting 
vibrant, modern, in the same way as Robin Hood, etc. I mean, look at this. For even the lower font, even the lower font inspired fit for the future. I've seen numerous rebrandings. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I mean, they're trying to clean up what's been messy, I think, since the merger back in 2016. And the stock's down 31%. I'm like, fix the business. Never mind the name. Is it really? Is it? Is it really? 21st century logoing. I kind of no, think it's a bit. I mean, ridiculous. I remember decades ago when the company then ICI changed its logo, spent ah. millions, and all it did was smooth out the wavy lines and at the bottom to show that it was an easier ride. I mean, I, this is this is cute. A lot of money will have been spent on it. It's designed to attract younger generation. I'm the wrong person to sign off on this one. There's no bad PR because at least we're talking about it. But you know what I did? I put I put it into um, into my iPhone and obviously auto corrected, and it came out to abraid, wear away by friction or erosion. Oh dear, we'll see how it goes. But hey, at least we're talking about it, so that helps them. Yeah, for yeah, now. Good one, Richard Christ. Just taking the. <laughs> Just make me start. <laughs> Julie Chatterley. Where did it end? Where did for never. Who? Never between you and me. We're done, I'm being told. It's over. Thank All you. Right. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running this Monday, and we have a higher open after an aimless week of trading last week. Nothing in the world is aimless. Call it perhaps the calm before the deluge of market moving events this week, beginning with Tesla's earnings after the closing bell today. The opening plays are bucking the trend as well. Actually, they're rising too. I've just seen them flip. Airlines and cruise lines are higher on signs that the EU might soften travel restrictions for vaccinated Americans this summer. Also in the cryptocurrency space, Bitcoin is higher and testing that 55,000 level again after last week's 19% drop. Fears that U.S. President Joe Biden's proposal to almost double capital gains taxes helped to pressure cryptocurrencies in general last week. Ethereum, XRP and Litecoin all bouncing back today. So some of the biggest digital currencies out there. Now, the Bahamas may be best known for its beautiful beaches, but it's now making waves with its blockchain technology. The island launching one of the world's first central bank-backed digital currencies in October. It's called the Sand Dollar, and it's backed by the Barmanian dollar, which is also pegged to the US dollar. To tell us all, joining us now, John Roll. He's the governor of the Central Bank of Bahamas. John, fantastic to have you on the show. I'm incredibly excited uh, to talk about this. You are right at the forefront and the cutting edge of adopting this technology. Just explain to us how you see it working and why it's an advantage to traditional forms of money and currency. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julia. In, in the Bahamas, we, we started along a process to modernize our payment system. And we address a lot of issues along the way, such as the big one, which is financial inclusion. Uh, having an island uh, archipelago and persons being scattered, even though a lot of the population has access to banking, the experience is different depending on how close you are to the city center. What we needed to do was to accelerate the transition to the more distribution of services through digital channels. And we also put emphasis on bringing new payment services providers into the space. And when we looked at the role that the public sector, in this case, the central bank could play, 
it was really in terms of making certain that these platforms could communicate or is in preferred in a technical language, they are interoperable. So we saw a central bank digital currency as being the link to provide that interoperability, ensuring that a lot of the experiences such as um, the access, the persons have cash, uh, there's no discrimination in terms of how they choose in terms of digital product provider, and that the experience across product providers doesn't become a hindrance. In other words, we don't want persons to be fixated on who they choose to provide their payment services. Once we can make certain that they are operating in an interoperable setting. And from that point of view, in a country where there are significant fixed costs to developing uh, financial services infrastructure, it makes sense for the public sector or the central bank in our case to, to go there and take the lead in putting the infrastructure in and having the central bank digital currency as that lubricating mechanism or interoperable mechanism for, for the payment system. How much of a transaction cost reduction could we see? Because I think this cuts to the heart of it, to your point, and I believe around, what, 20% of your population are unbanked. So giving them access to mobile wallets and digital currency makes perfect sense to me. But just in terms of the, the cost benefit, the efficiencies of a digital currency versus traditional forms of payment like cash, for example, what are, what are we talking about here? Can you give us a sense? Well, from, from a policy point of view, we took the position that for you and I as individuals with, with mobile wallets, if we are distributing payments amongst ourselves, if it's the sand dollar, there is no transaction charge being exacted upon those users in the, the digital currency space. However, we do allow the payment providers to, to charge for their services in other realms, such as the merchant services that they provide. One of the advantages that they have in terms of opportunity to reduce costs that the layers of intermediaries in, in payment space are reduced to the extent that this is an entirely domestic platform for settling payments, which was not the case for uh, a lot of the other types of transactions out there, such as the, the debit cards and the credit cards. Inevitably, there is a, an international element. Those will continue to exist. But now we're introducing new persons who will be potentially using uh, services where you're literally, in some cases, texting funds from one person to the next. For those individuals, the, the cost will be reduced. It makes sense to me. Um, talk to me about the fact that it's pegged to your local currency, which is also obviously pegged to the US dollar. There are critics here that say you need to have some ability for it to be a store of value rather than just uh, an exchange of value utility function, if you want big business, if you want investors to hold this digital coin on their balance sheets, for example, what do you make of that? And is this in any way comparable to a cryptocurrency like a Bitcoin, for example, or do you see what you're doing here as something entirely separate? On some, in some respect, that is separate. We are focused on enabling more efficient transactions in the payment space. We have not designed our central bank digital currency as a substitute for deposit or equivalent assets in the banking system. As a matter of fact, we, we've said that there are limits to how much of this instrument that the retail user can hold. So we do not want uh, persons to be looking at this as a, an alternative to deposit. That's certainly not what we're up to. 
we want the focus to be on how it eases the settlement process when funds are transferred from one, one place to the next. And so why is this superior to using something like a PayPal, for example, that isn't just purely domestic, it can cross borders and has global reach? Why? Well, and you can educate me on the logic here of, of a central bank digital coin. Well, think about it. If you have Apple Pay, PayPal, and many of the others in the US or other markets, and you, you identify the equivalent in the Bahamian market space, what is happening is that if those platforms are not interoperable or they cannot speak with each other easily, uh, you, you're, you're forcing the consumers to make a choice, in some cases, between which platform they use for payment. What we've said in the Bahamas is that, yes, we can have differentiated uh, services, different platforms, but they must communicate. And, and we provide the glue for the communication across the platform. So the central bank digital currency in this case allows the other payment platform still demonstrate whatever innovations they want in terms of how they pr- provide services. But every user at a minimum can now send funds across the system wherever, um, irrespective of the platform that they choose uh, for those services. So that is what is important. And uh, so we were able, in many respects, to to leapfrog the process because dealing with interoperability in the payment space is not an easy hurdle to overcome, especially if you already have a very developed system with lots of providers in the space. It's so exciting. I I think other central banks around the world should be talking to you. Um, can't wait to see you progress and uh, your progress, and uh, look forward to speaking to you soon. John Roll, Governor of the Central Bank thank of you. the Bahamas, said thank, thank you. All right, coming up after the break, solid steps to reduce carbon emissions. Why investments are pouring into a Canadian company trying to help the environment. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move. Governments around the world are under pressure to cut carbon emissions, as we saw last week. And as our reliance on dirty fossil fuels sends the numbers in the wrong direction, it's down to innovators to find solutions. Well, cement is a key ingredient in concrete, and it's all around us. It also has a massive carbon footprint. If you imagine cement production as a country, it would be the third largest emitter in the world behind China and the United States. Now, the Canadian company Carbon Cure found a way to permanently store carbon dioxide by injecting it into concrete during production. The firm was also a winner in Elon Musk's $20 million X Prize. And investors include Amazon's Climate Fund and Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is backed by Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Mark Benioff, and Jack Ma. Rob Niven is CEO and founder of Carbon Cure and joins us now. Rob, great to have you with us. I did a little bit of the explanation there of how you're doing this, but just let me take a step back and ask you, what's the vision for Carbon Cure and how are you tackling carbon emissions? Uh, thank you very much, Julia. It's, it's wonderful to be here today. Uh, to start off with our vision, our vision is to, to set a new global standard for making low carbon and circular concrete. And, and that involves actually looking at CO2 a bit differently. Uh, we consider CO2 as a feedstock. Of course, recognize that it's also a harmful greenhouse gas. But uh, as a feedstock in concrete production, you can actually put the CO2 to work and actually create additional value from incorporating it into the concrete production process. It's a chemical reaction that occurs where that CO2 is turned permanently into a mineral within concrete. 
which gives it a number of performance and economic benefits as well. So you're effectively turning on its head rather than being an industry that says, look, we just have to reduce our carbon footprint. What you're saying is what we're going to do is go and out there buy the CO2 and do something chemically with it to permanently lock it in concrete. And actually, there are benefits that it it makes the concrete or the cement stronger, too, I believe. Yeah, that's that. Uh, that's exactly right. And and just to be clear, we're not saying do don't do all the other things. We still no. need to do everything on the table. <laughs> um, but this is another solution we can incorporate. Uh, we would look at CO two as being the the fifth ingredient in concrete now, uh, where it does provide all these sort of strength and and production cost efficiencies as well. So really, there's no trade offs that are necessary, um, and and that's allowed concrete producers to really adopt this technology so rapidly around the world. We're already operating in a little over 300 plants on on four continents. Wow. So you're already up and running in 300 plants, you said. How quickly can you transition from the traditional form of creating cement to adopting your technology? It's, It's more, think of it more of a retrofit or enhancement in the concrete production process. So we certainly don't want to replace the concrete industry. It's a vital uh, component for all the new infrastructure development that we're embarking on. Uh, we're also building a uh, equivalent of New York City every 30 days. So there's a lot of construction that needs to happen. Most of that will be made with concrete. We just need to decouple it from the uh, very high carbon uh, emissions that come along with that. So um, it's it's really an enhancement of an existing process uh, and, and working with those existing employers and, and existing production processes so that it just becomes uh, part of the new green economy. You said there were no trade-offs. I guess the only trade-off one could bring in is the cost. How much more does it cost to buy the CO2, to inject the CO2 into the cement versus just creating cement in the traditional way? This is actually the best part, Julia, is that Uh, 99% of the producers today uh, don't incorporate any significant price premium whatsoever. And the reason why we're able to do that is by first focusing on the material science and using CO2 to actually improve the strength of the concrete, which allows producers to be able to use a little bit less cement and uh, which doubles up on the CO2 reductions, but it also provides them a bit of relief on the economics so that they can provide this technology to the market at exactly the same price uh, with equivalent or improved um, um, quality issues or around material performance. So um, so really, when I said no trade-offs, I, I really you meant, meant it. <laughs> it's all right. It's just my job to challenge. But the only cost Please, then, as much to as your you point want. <laughs> is the sunk cost of, of um, buying in the technology, um, which, hey, if it pays back almost instantly, then that's fantastic. Um, you mentioned the 300. And there is no CapEx. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. another part. Explain. Oh, uh, we, we actually uh, borrowed from the technology model, uh, which is called a SaaS model. So we provide all of the equipment, all the ongoing services uh, uh, without any uh, additional fee. And uh, we charge a, 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 licensing, um, a licensing fee that comes with that. And that, uh, that licensing fee is, is then offset by these production savings that we had mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think that's why uh, we're getting a sense of why investors like Jeff Bezos, Mark Benioff, Reid Hoffman, Jack Mara are interested in <laughs> investing in you, quite frankly. Um, yeah. So where in the world is this being utilised now? And 
I could mention China briefly, and I will. I, I saw a statistic that said in the three years, I think, to 2013, they produced more cement uh, concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century, which I'll verify the fact. But Rob, are you working with China? We're not quite there yet. As you can imagine, there's there's so many concrete producers around the planet. There's about 100,000. Uh, so we still have a long way to go. And uh, and of course, uh, China is is a, uh, a very interesting market, a very complicated market. So there's there's a, a lot of other markets that we're focusing on today. Most of our growth has occurred in the United States, but we're rapidly expanding into new markets. And, and in case of Asia, places like Malaysia and Singapore, Japan, uh, these are all markets that we're already operating in. And within the United States, uh, just about every metropolitan area, major metropolitan area, and many suburbs and smaller towns as well are, are actually already using carbon cure. So you're you're probably, or construction is probably occurring with carbon cure without them even knowing about it. Ha ha, fascinating. And you're not ruling out China. It's just a work in progress. Absolutely. I, you know, our, <laughs> our our mission as a company is to reduce 500 megatons per year by the year 2030. There's no way that we're going to be able to do that without China. It's just right. a matter of uh, walking before you run and uh, developing the, the, the right partnerships. And uh, once we're ready, it'll certainly be uh, a very interesting and very look forward to opportunity. Yeah, and the whole world will benefit. Rob, great to have you on. Thank you so much for um, sharing what your company's doing and uh, thank you for all the work. Rob Niven there, the CEO you, and founder of Carbon Cure. All right, you're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. As the world paused for the pandemic, the transportation industry seized the opportunity to reimagine the ways in which we move. Bianca Nabilo has been exploring how technology is playing a pivotal role in that new future. And she starts by looking at Virgin Hyperloop. November 8th, 2020. Just outside Las Vegas, Nevada, Virgin Hyperloop passed another milestone in its ambitious journey to revolutionize the way we move. It carried out its first passenger ride. Josh Geigel, CEO and co-founder of Virgin Hyperloop, and Sarah Luchin, the director of passenger experience, were the first to test it out. And what was that experience like for you? Oh, it was absolutely incredible. It was phenomenal to be sitting in a vehicle that we've designed, built, we've made safe. And once we started going down the pod, we felt a nice gentle acceleration. And then we got, it was a pretty short test, but we got to the end. And all we want to do is go back again. Yes. 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 Virgin Hyperloop is harnessing magnetic levitation technology and wants to take it to the next level. So what we want to do is be the first new mode of mass transportation in over 100 years. So we're not a plane, we're not a car, we're not a boat. What we are is a pod moving inside of a tube at the speed of an aircraft for a fraction of the energy consumption, basically taking you directly from where you are to where you want to be without stopping at every place along the way, uh, smooth, electrically, sustainably, autonomously. It's this idea that being able to move 10 times faster than you know a car and doing that for a fraction of the emissions, being able to connect, being able to move so many people, being able to save so many, I'll say, tons of emissions, is that it's really going to open up a lot of opportunities. 
Has the pandemic altered the course of your planning or the execution of your pilot projects? What impact has it had for you? The thing that I think is maybe a little bit of a silver lining, if we could say that about the, the pandemic, is that it's really accelerated the talk about sustainability. We've seen a world with less congestion. We've seen a world with less pollution. We've also felt this absolute human desire to be connected to each other. So we want to see each other. We want things faster. And this is the opportunity for us to rethink what it is we're doing about the future and make some changes. Instead of building back the past, we can actually build back the future. And that just about wraps up First Move today, but I have to just finally wish my father happy birthday. It is his birthday today, and I've not seen him for a really long time, and I just wanted to tell him that I love him, and I will hug him very soon. Happy birthday, Dad. You are the best. That is really it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.